Anglican chaplain Lee was a Rhodes Scholar, a patriot, and a descendant of one of America's most distinguished families, and possibly the best-placed mole ever to infiltrate U.S. intelligence operations. In his new book, Mark Bradley traces the tangled roots of Lee's betrayal and reveals his harrowing struggle to stay one step ahead of America's spy hunters during and after World War II. Drawing on Lee's letters and thousands of previously unreleased CIA, FBI, and State Department records, Bradley tells the unlikely story of a spy who chose his conscience over his country and its dark consequences. Mark A. Bradley is a Phi Beta Kappa graduate of Washington and Lee University and holds an MA in Modern History from Oxford University, which he attended as a Rhodes Scholar. He also received a JD from the University of Virginia. He's a former CIA intelligence officer, currently serving as an attorney in the Department of Justice's National Security Division. Mark is a recipient of the CIA's Exceptional Performance Award, an Attorney General's Award from the Department of Justice, and the James Madison Prize from the Society in History of the Federal Government. Before joining the Department of Justice in November 2000, he also served as Senator, Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan's Legislative Assistant for Foreign Affairs and Intelligence Matters and as Moynihan's last Legislative Director. Mark was also a public defender at one time. He is the author of A Very Principled Boy, The Life of Duncan Lee, Red Spy and Cold Warrior, copies of which he will be delighted to sign after the lecture out in the lobby. So please join me in a warm VHS welcome from Mark Bradley. Everybody hear me okay? Okay, great. Uh, what an honor it is to be here in Richmond. Uh, this is such a venerable institution and such a wonderful venue, and I am very uh, grateful to be here today. I'm also grateful to be out of Washington, that city that John F. Kennedy said had a lot of northern charm and southern efficiency. <laughs> I've been told, though, that the Virginia Historical Society is very efficient on book talks, so I'm going to go right into it and, and not uh, uh, take any more time. Uh, a very principal boy is the story of Duncan Chaplin Lee, um, a member of the Lee family of Virginia, a Rhodes Scholar, a decorated lieutenant colonel in the All Strategic Services, a brilliant lawyer, and perhaps the best placed spy the Soviets ever had inside any American intelligence service. Recruited by the Soviets in the summer of 1942, Lee passed classified intelligence to Moscow until late 1944, when a rising fear of getting caught and an increasingly guilty conscience finally forced him to stop. Five years later, in what I believe was a bid to atone for what he had done and to insulate himself from his communist past, Lee became a cold warrior in China, fighting Mao Zedong's communists and playing a leading role in keeping Taiwan out of Mao's hands. Although the FBI and what later became the National Security Agency were absolutely convinced that Lee had betrayed his country during World War II, Lee's federal pursuers were never able to arrest, much less prosecute him. He died on April 15, 1988 in Toronto, Canada, a free and wealthy man after a long and lucrative career with the American Insurance Group, AIG, and the CB Star, its parent company. 
seeds of this book were planted almost exactly 15 years ago this month during a lunch I had with uh, Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan. At the time, I had the honor of serving as the Senator's uh, legislative aide for intelligence and foreign affairs matters. Lunch with Moynihan was always an intellectual adventure. Um, you know, the old joke in the Senate was, uh, unfortunately true, was that Moynihan had written more books than most of his fellow senators had read. <laughs> so lunch with him could be about uh, the Battle of Saratoga and the significance of world history, or it could be about Balsh Tweed and Tammany Hall. I mean, one never knew. During this particular lunch, Moynihan wanted to talk about something called Venona, an American code-breaking program that had been directed against the Soviet Union during World War II. The senator had played a key role in getting the program declassified in 1995. And among its most uh, revealing or important revelations was that approximately 350 Americans had had a covert relationship with Soviet intelligence during World War II. Among these was a man named Duncan Lee. Moynihan asked me if I'd ever heard of Duncan Lee, and I said I had not. And he looked at me in kind of that shocked way that he could. <laughs> and he said, well, you ought. And I said, well, why is that, Senator? And he said, well, because he reminds me of you. <laughs> he said, well, think about it. <laughs> he said, you were both uh, Rhodes Scholars at the same Oxford College. Uh, Lee and I were 40 years and two staircases apart at Christ Church. He said, uh, you were in the CIA. He was in the OSS, which was the forerunner to the CIA. You were both lawyers. You're both from Virginia. And you went to Washington and Lee, which worships the Lee family about as much as the Catholic Church worships the popes. He said, I think Lee would make a really good book if you could find out exactly why he did what he did. Uh, what I found out was, is that Lee didn't betray his country because of money, because of revenge, because of ego, because of sex. He did it for something else. And that's something else is what this book is uh, largely about. What I'm gonna talk about is, is why Lee became a Soviet spy and then briefly why we never caught him, and then I'm going to open it up to questions because I, I, I want to hear what you all uh, have, to, uh, have to ask. Uh, all spy masters dream of using a, a mole to penetrate their foe's secret services, while at the same time fearing that their foes are plotting to do the same thing to them. CIA in particular has devoted a lot of time and money to studying what it calls the psychology of treason. After pouring over scores of penetration cases down through the decades, Langley's counterintelligence experts have determined that most of those who have elected to spy against their own countries share two characteristics. One, they spring from a psychologically fertile soil that makes them able to do this kind of thing in the first place. And two, the right set of circumstances will somehow push them into action. In Lee's case, I think that the psychologically fertile soil can be traced back to his highly unusual background and heritage. While the circumstances that pushed him to act arose in the 1930s with the seeming collapse of American capitalism and the stomp of the fascist jackboots through the streets of Berlin and Madrid. Duncan Lee came from long lines of men and women who devoted their life to serving causes they believed were much larger than themselves. Twice, these causes involved and included rebelling against their own governments. Duncan was a direct descendant of Richard Henry Lee, one of two Lees who signed the Declaration of Independence and he was a collateral relative of Confederate General Robert E. Lee. Duncan's great-grandfather was Robert E. Lee's first cousin. Through his mother, Duncan was a direct descendant of John and Priscilla Alden of the Mayflower. And from long lines of New England Baptist clergymen. Equally important, Duncan was a direct product of missionary parents. 
whose otherworldly devotion to saving souls and paving the way for the second coming of Jesus Christ left him, I think, with deep feelings of awe and a gnawing sense of inadequacy. Edmund Jennings Lee IV, Duncan's father, served as a missionary in China from 1902 to 1928. His mother, Lucy Chaplin, was there from 1911 until 1927. Duncan himself was born in China in 1913. Although neither parent necessarily expected Duncan to become a missionary, they did expect him to find his own way to serve mankind. They made it very clear to him as a young boy that having a selfish life would not do. They expected him to find a path where he too could, if not necessarily emulate them or become exactly like them as near as he could. Duncan knew that whatever he was gonna do, he needed the best education that he could get. Um, but what he did is in 1931, after graduating from Woodbury Forest, he entered Yale University. While at Yale, he devoted himself to winning as many academic, athletic, and social uh, honors as he could. By the time he graduated in 1935, he had won two scholarships, six debating prizes, done honors work in European history, been elected to Phi Beta Kappa, starred in one of uh, Yale Shakespeare plays, helped found the Yale Political Union, was head librarian of Pearson College, played freshman football, wrestled for the varsity, and had been elected to one of its elite uh, secret societies. Yeah. Pouring over his record at Yale, I only found two faint glimmers, I think, of what was to come. And one is this, for the first time in his life, he began to question Christianity, particularly its ability to confront and address the social and economic wreckage of the Great Depression. Secondly, he wrote an essay that he was very proud of. In fact, he was proud enough of it to send it to his parents. And the topic was, in a clash between your country and your conscience, which would you choose? Lee wrote he would choose his conscience every time over patriotism. He would not be bound by something as conventional as that. If he thought something was wrong and his country thought it was right, he would choose his own way of thinking or own way of looking at it. That said, I think it's safe to say that the last thing on Duncan Lee's mind at Yale was becoming either a communist or a Soviet spy. What was on his mind was becoming a Rhodes Scholar, something that he achieved in uh, 1935, uh, the year he was elected to read law at uh, Christ Church, again, our common college at, uh, at Oxford. Oxford's politically charged atmosphere was quite a bit different than the tranquility uh, that Lee had experienced at Yale. Even in 1935, Oxford was still reeling from the shock and the horrors of the uh, Great War. 1914, Oxford's size was about 3,000. By 1918, 2,600 Oxford students and graduates lay dead on the Western Front. It was an extraordinarily uh, violent war for Oxford. Indeed, if you were an Oxford officer, you had a five times greater chance of being killed than the working class men you led because you were expected to lead from the front. Not since the War of the Roses, the great families of England suffered such bloodletting. What that bloodletting did was, though, it led to a rejection of the Edwardian values that many blamed uh, for placing their fathers and older brothers in graves that now stretch from the Somme to Passchendaele. I think this rejection can most clearly be seen in 1933 when the Oxford Union resolved that under no circumstances will this house fight for king and country. What that is, is it's an astonishing rejection by the social elite saying they're not gonna support their government anymore, particularly in, in a war, they're not gonna do it again. Coupled with this was a uh, rising questioning of K 
capitalism itself, especially after the Great Depression slammed into England, hit England even harder than it did us. By the time Duncan arrived in Oxford, about two-thirds of the British people were either below the poverty line or just on it. So people in Oxford began to question the, the type of economic system that would lead to this type of, of degradation. By 1933, the university's October Club, its student communist organization, numbered about 300 people. So by the time Lee comes up to Oxford, the university has become, in the words of C.K. Allen, then the warden of Rose House, a nursery for somewhat revolutionary ideas. Quite a bit different again than Yale. Three things happened to Duncan at, at Oxford that I think placed him on the road to be recruited by the Soviets. One is, 1936, he met his uh, first wife, uh, Isabella Mary Ann Scott Gibb, known as Ishbel. Ishbel uh, was a daughter of a uh, British civil servant in India. He was a tax collector, and she spent her formative, day, uh, formative years as a youth in India and grew to loathe the British Empire and everything it stood for. She thought that it was racist and that it's exploitative and that it was the last thing she wanted to be associated with. Indeed, she dreamed of the day the British Empire would come to an end. 1932, she went up to Oxford and immediately immersed herself in left-wing politics. She met Duncan at a dance uh, in 1936. He uh, was immediately attracted to her. She was uh, a very uh, attractive uh, woman, pictures in the book. And he uh, found out that she liked or was very interested in the American Civil War. Duncan played his trump card and said, well, I'm uh, related to Robert E. Lee. Would you like to go out on a, on a date? <laughs> it worked. He got her to go with him up to Stratford-on-Avon to watch Shakespeare, and three months later, they were engaged. I think her influence on him is almost incalculable. She pushed him much further to the left than he was when he got there. She gave him uh, tracks to read. She talked to him about you know, the waste of capitalism, the fear of fascism. She plays a huge role in his intellectual development. And again, you have somebody who's looking for something and, and looking to measure up especially to what his parents are telling him. You need to be something. You need to be something other than, what, than just a selfish lawyer or, or a businessman. You have to serve mankind. Again, he's being haunted by these words. Second thing is, in 1936, uh, Duncan visits Nazi Germany twice, and what he sees scares him to death. Lee has actually read Hitler's Mein Kampf, and he comes back and he says, uh, tells his classmates, uh, guess what? Hitler is going to do exactly what he says he's going to do. He's arming not only to avenge what he considers to be the sins of the Versailles Treaty, but he intends to conquer most of Europe. So Lee comes back terrified, that, and, 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 and he is upset that the great democracy seemed to be sleeping while Hitler was coming to power. Concomitant with this in 1936 was the outbreak of the Spanish Civil War. Out of all the events in the 1930s, nothing electrified the political left more than what was going on in Spain. What happens is you have a, a democratically elected popular front government uh, being overthrown by Francisco Franco and the military and the Catholic Church. This seems to be a local struggle until Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini begin to send money to Franco. Lee and others on the left begin to see Spain as ground zero in the coming war between fascism and democracy. He is enraged that the United States Great Britain and France refused to help the Republican government against Hitler and Mussolini. Only one country does, the Soviet Union. Because of that, and because Lee wanted to see the great Soviet experiment himself, he decided to go to Russia in August of 1937. So he and Ishbel took a three-week trip to the Soviet Union. Now, you've got to remember, these trips were very carefully choreographed by the Soviets. They wanted you to see what, what, you, what they wanted you to see. 
Lee is taken to a five-star hotel in uh, Leningrad. He's shown all the wonderful treasures. He takes a steam-burning locomotive at night down to Moscow in first-class accommodations. Again, put into a five-star hotel. Sumptuous meals. He goes to Lenin's old house, listens to recordings of Lenin's voice, sees Lenin's tomb. But he also sees something else. He sees a country that seems to be working. He sees a country that doesn't seem to have economic want. He sees a country that doesn't seem to have class stratifications. His first postcard back to his parents says it all. Two words, perfectly unbelievable. I've seen utopia. Now, what's odd about that is, in 1937, what's going on? We're at the height of Stalin's great purges. No one knows for sure. You can consult any number of historians that you wish. Most common, commonly agreed number is this, that between 1937 and 1938, Stalin executed some in the neighborhood of 750,000 of his own people. Instead, another 750,000 to die in frozen gulags. Overall, Stalin ultimately may be responsible for more than 15 million deaths of his own, own citizens. Lee, though, and Ishbel are kept away from this stockyard-like killing machinery. And never mind, he could have cocked his ear and probably heard the gunfire going off in the woods and asked some questions. But again, he's there to see what he wants to see. And the Russians are there to make sure that he sees it. He returns home to Oxford and, or returns to Oxford in, 19, in, in September after being in, in, in Russia that, uh, that August. And he writes a long letter to his parents. Edmund and Lucy uh, are now at Chatham Hall. Uh, Edmund's become the uh, rector and headmaster of Chatham Hall School for Girls down in Pennsylvania County, still in operation today. And he says to his parents, I found the answer that you asked me to look for. Uh, I want to become a member of the Communist Party. That goes over like a bomb in Chatham Hall. <laughs> his father writes back and says, there are two problems with that. One is you're committing political suicide. Even at that young age, Duncan had talked about maybe becoming Virginia's governor at Sunday or maybe our, one of our uh, senators. His father said, you don't understand. Being a, labeled as a communist in the United States is a, is, is a death knell to your career. And secondly, if you haven't noticed, the communists want to abolish the Christian church. I mean, that's our family business. And doesn't that mean anything to you? His letters go back and forth. Finally, Duncan agrees to, he says this, all right, I won't do it until I'm indif economically independent, uh, but I think it's pretty much inevitable that Ishbel and I will join the Communist Party. 1938, Duncan graduates from Oxford, marries Ishbel, and returns to New Haven as a Sterling Fellow in the Yale Law School. While at Yale, he does two things that seem to be contradictory, but make it almost uh, inevitable that he's now going to be recruited as a Soviet agent. One is he joins the Communist Party of the United States of America. Secondly, he joins a Wall Street law firm headed by William uh, Joseph Donovan. Now, it sounds odd, doesn't it, to be a communist and also work for a Wall Street law firm. Interestingly enough, Alger Hiss did the exact same thing. And it wasn't, if you needed money, you needed money. <laughs> you could work for Wall Street during the day and dream of collectivizing its wealth at night. Uh, you could hold these two opposing ideas in your head. The Communist Party that uh, Duncan joined in 1939 had about 100,000 members. Uh, in many ways, it, it, it made sense to him intellectually because the Communist Party was at the forefront of, of racial issues in this country, also uh, economic equality, and also uh, the right of labor unions to organize. Problem is, it had a far darker uh, mission. And acting under orders under the Communist International in Moscow, it was also an auxiliary for the Soviet intelligence services. 
Soviet Union's intelligence services can be traced back to about 1917 when Lenin founded the, uh, the Cheka to safeguard his revolution from uh, internal subversion and also from external subversion from us and the British. Very effective at its job and very, very good. In 1920, uh, after the revolution was secure, or at least secure enough, Lenin asked his spy chief, Felix Brzezinski, Felix, why don't I have any spies in the United States? And what they were interested in was not our, our political secrets, they wanted our economic technology. Lenin was trying to bring the Soviet Union economy into the 20th century. And he knew that one of the easiest ways to do that was to steal American technology. 1924, the Soviets set up what was called Amtorg Trading Agency in New York City, and that ostensibly was set up to facilitate trade between the United States and uh, the Soviet Union. It did that, but it also did something else. It provided wonderful cover for the NKVD to begin to send agents in the, into the United States to operate under commercial cover. These gains, though, are, are dwarfed in 1933 when we established diplomatic relations with the Soviets. In 1933, they established an embassy in Washington and two consulates, one in New York and the other in San Francisco. With those institutions comes the NKVD in full force. Now again, the United States is mostly an economic target. France, Great Britain, Germany, Poland, even Finland's more important to the Soviets than we are. They see us mostly as a way or a conduit for technology. By the mid-1930s, certainly by the late 30s, they have about 90 sources scattered throughout the United States government and in various American corporations, making nice strides. Shockingly, Stalin himself brings an end to this. In 1937, part of his great terror, he shoots 3,000 of his own NKVD officers, believes they're plotting against him. By 1920, I'm sorry, by, by 1938, 20,000 of his best NKVD officers are executed. That'd be about the equivalent of wiping out the CIA today. It's an astonishing thing to do, and it's also an astonishing thing if you look at the dates. We're moving towards World War II. And what's Stalin doing? He's putting his own eyes out. Right? I mean, it's, it's, it's absurd. Yet, you know, Stalin at best was a functioning paranoid. On the eve of World War II, the Soviets have about 14 officers left in the United States. Only four of those have served in the United States before, and only two of them speak English well enough to operate. So it's not a very good force to be <laughs> facing uh, the outbreak of war on. This forces the NKVD, as badly wounded as it is, to turn to the American Communist Party, not only for agents, but also for case officers, those who manage agents, because they have to pick up the slack when the NKVD tries to repair itself during the war. Duncan, in the meantime, has become a favorite of William Wild Bill Donovan, who's the head partner of the law firm, Donovan, Leisure, Newton, and Lombard, that uh, Lee has, has joined as an associate. Lee, in many ways, becomes a surrogate son for Donovan. Donovan's very attracted to Lee's uh, Virginia background, his education, his charm, his sophistication. Lee, by the way, was a brilliant lawyer and quickly rose up in the firm as to be one of the uh, general's favorites. 1942, when Franklin Roosevelt turns to Donovan, Donovan and uh, Roosevelt and Donovan had been classmates at Columbia Law School together uh, and asked him to form what became the Office of Strategic Services, forerunner to our modern CIA, Donovan did what many of us would do. He reached back into his associations to find people to staff it, particularly his law firm. Among those he took with him was Duncan Lee. When Lee uh, told the Communist Party headquarters in New York that Donovan had offered him a job, 
headquarters immediately wires Moscow and says, do you believe this? <laughs> we could have a man right in the elbow of, of, of the, the new American uh, intelligence chief. Moscow cables back, for God's sakes, recruit him immediately. Doesn't take much. Uh, Lee's recruited by a woman named Mary Price from North Carolina uh, to be a Soviet spy. Why did he do that? I think for two reasons, basically. One is, is that I think he knew his time had come. This was a God-given opportunity for him to save the great Soviet experiment. You have to remember, by the time he does this, Hitler's invaded the Soviet Union. He's dead in June 22nd, 1941. It looked for a while, and in fact, for the first couple of years, that the Soviet Union was going to fall. So Lee said, this is a God-given opportunity to save the Soviets. If I can save the Soviets, I can save mankind. Secondly, Lee was very upset, as many American communists were, by the lack of a second front. They believed that we were letting the Soviets bear the brunt of the war. When Donovan took Lee in, he first took him in as an, uh, uh, in, in the general counsel's office, then as an aide de camp, and then later made Lee chief of his secretariat. The secretariat in the OSS was its nerve center, which meant every cable that Donovan saw, Lee saw. Everything that Donovan you know, sent out, Lee saw. So he was seeing everything that was coming in and going out of the OSS. Uh, most important information he gave the Russians, he did give them uh, our D-Day invasion date, but we had given Stalin that ourselves at the Tehran conference. It was just more of a confirmation. I think the most important information he gave the Soviets were some of the internal investigations the OSS was doing to root out other communist spies inside the organization. Russians acted on that information and were able to shut those spies down. He also gave the, the Soviets information uh, about pro-Western groups that were operating in Bulgaria and Hungary, uh, which was important to the Russians after the war so they could shut these groups down and have these people executed. But you have to remember, you know, it, it, what makes this, this case strange is, is that the Soviet Union is what during World War II? I mean, we've got kind of a shotgun alliance with them. I mean, there are, there are allies. So, you know, this, this gets to be, uh, you know, it's certainly a case of espionage, but it has a, a bit of a moral flavor to it, uh, an odd way, but it, I'll get to that uh, just, just in a minute. 1944, uh, Lee, like a lot of American spies uh, during this time, began to lose his nerve. He, by this time, he knew two things. He knew we were going to win the war. Uh, it was still going to take some effort, but that the great Soviet experiment was safe and that Hitler was going to be defeated. And he also knew that the American counterintelligence effort was becoming more robust, and he became terrified he was going to be caught. Late 1944, he begins to miss appointments with his uh, NKVD case officers. He's got three of them that he sees throughout his career. And uh, the Russians begin to, to ask Ishbel, for God's sakes, I mean, you know, don't let him drop this. It's too important to the cause. Make him keep coming to the meetings. Lee does, but he's increasingly reluctant to pass information. And in fact, he's, he begins to manifest physical uh, problems. He's so nervous he can't even light a cigarette. He can't even hold a cup of coffee. He begins to tell the Russians uh, two things. He says, I'm afraid of being shot if I'm caught. And two is, is that I, I have an unclean conscience now about what I've done for the United States, or to the United States. I don't think it was right. Of course, the Russians aren't that sympathetic <laughs> about either one of those, right? I mean, you, this isn't the way, the way the game is played. I mean, you're our agent, and, and that's the way it is. What they begin to worry about, though, was is, is Lee falling apart. And that wasn't unusual. In fact, the, the head of the American Communist Party uh, in, in New York complained bitterly to Moscow about the psychiatric bills the Communist Party was having to pay for its various American spies because 
none of these people had been trained uh, in tradecraft or, or how spies actually operate. They were amateurs. And living a double life was very, very hard for a lot of them. And they began to, to, to fall apart. So the Communist Party was paying all sorts of psychiatrists in New York to keep these people spies. In March, uh, Lee meets with his last uh, handler, and the handler says, uh, you know, I think this guy is shot. I don't think he's got the nerve anymore. And so he wires uh, KGB or NKVD Moscow and says, what do you want me to do with him? And they, they write back and say, okay, let's do this. Let's put him on ice for a while, but let's, uh, let's not let him go. He's too important. Uh, maybe we can use him as a spotter or as a recruiter. For, can, he can point out promising people to what's inside the OSS. We'll never know whether that was going to happen or not because uh, in 1945, in November, uh, Lee's second handler, a woman named Elizabeth Bentley, defected to the FBI, causing the Russians to shut down their entire uh, North American spy network. Luckily for the Russians, uh, Kim Philby was sitting at the uh, American desk in London and received the first cable from the FBI on this, and Philby was able to warn Moscow Station, shut down the network. So by the time the FBI swings into action, Nobody's doing anything anymore. The Russians have very effectively shut down their, uh, their operations. Bureau opens a file on Lee, and they hunt him for the next 13 years, yet they're never able to get him. Now, why is that? I think there are probably four main reasons. One is, is that Lee was very smart. He never passed any documents to the Russians. He memorized them. So unlike Alger Hiss, who kept denying when Whitaker Chambers uh, made his allegations, uh, and Chambers did something that uh, Elizabeth Bentley couldn't do. He produced something called the Pumpkin Papers, papers <laughs> either written in his own hand or typed on his own typewriter. Duncan memorized things, so when it came down to it, it was his word against Elizabeth Bentley's. Secondly, Duncan had an extraordinarily, uh, uh, extraordinary gift uh, that, that you see, I think, in the very best of spies. And I don't mean this in an admiring way, it's just a trait, that he had a, uh, almost a preternatural ability to compartmentalize his personality. When I was writing the book, it was almost as if I was writing about different people at different times of his life. And that's what made it so hard for his children and his friends to come to terms with when these allegations publicly surfaced. They said, how could this be? This isn't the same person, this couldn't be the person, the, the man I know. And you know, in, in many ways it wasn't. He was able to pull down these curtains inside of himself and uh, walls and keep himself almost totally, keep the, the compartment sealed. Thirdly is we had almost no counterintelligence capability uh, in, in, in World War II. You gotta remember the, uh, I think between 1924 and 1936, the FBI opened up one counterintelligence investigation. Bureau was mostly a crime fighting organization. In the 30s, it spent its time going after John Dillinger, Pretty Boy Floyd, Babyface Nelson, now it's being asked to go up against the most sophisticated secret service in the world, the NKVD. Lastly, and I think most controversially, uh, I think Lee got away because of Franklin Roosevelt. And I say this uh, with a, uh, a real sense of irony here because I think it shows how often uh, messy and nuanced history can be. I'm going to even complicate it further by saying I think Roosevelt was absolutely right to, to do what he did. What I mean by this is, that, is, is this, is that when World War II broke out, Roosevelt knew one thing. The United States was not ready to fight at all. Our army was uh, 18th in the world in size. Even Belgium had a bigger army than we did. We had an army that was more interested in horses and wagons than it was in tanks and planes. 
We also had no Central Intelligence Service, certainly no foreign Central Intelligence Service. Army had a small group, Navy had a small group, but there was nobody pulling the stuff together and trying to make sense out of it. We did have one ace in the hole, though, and that was our industrial might. But Roosevelt knew it would take time for us to harness that might to be able to get it into a wartime footing. What that meant is we needed time, and that time can only be bought one way. The Soviet Union's war against Russia. World War II, the Russians lose 28 million people. 11 million of those were on the battlefield. We lost 406,000. For every five German soldiers killed in World War II, Russians kill four. They're killing 60,000 Germans a month from June 1941 until June of 1944. It's an astonishingly effective killing machine. Roosevelt understands we have to keep Russia in the war. What happened in World War I to us was, was, uh, was devastating when Vladimir Lenin pulled the Russians out of the fighting. That allowed the Kaiser to move all his men from the Eastern Front to the Western Front, which meant that we had to rush green troops to Europe to fight. If you look at the casualty rates we sustained in World War I, they are catastrophic, given the time we were there. I think over 116,000 Americans died in that war in a very brief time we were there. We were no better facing the trenches and machine guns than the British or the French. Yet our manpower made the difference in World War I. Roosevelt didn't want to have to rush the second front. Remember, we don't go to France until June of 1944. Now, we're, going, we're doing other things in Italy and, and Africa, but Stalin wants France. He wants to see an action across the channel. Roosevelt wasn't going to take a chance of angering Stalin. He knew he was a functioning paranoid at best. And the last thing we wanted was the Russians either to pull out of the war or to strike some separate deal with Hitler. Remember, when, when Hitler was hammering at, at uh, Moscow's gates, Stalin did try to make a peace uh, treaty with him and say, look, you can have the Ukraine, just take it. I mean, odd now in Putin's day if you think about that, but I mean, <laughs> at that time, uh, Stalin was willing just to, to cede huge chunks of Russian territory to be able to keep uh, uh, the Soviet Union uh, in, in existence. So looking at all this and looking at the way that the Russians were, were killing uh, German soldiers and knowing that we were, we were getting ready, we were coming, we were giving him Lend-Lease, but we still hadn't given him the, the troops he thought that, that we should be giving in a cross-channel invasion, uh, made a decision. And that decision, uh, later, uh, there were some, particularly Joe McCarthy and others, who believed it was kind of traitorous, but I think you have to look at history uh, as it happens, when it happens. And you have to remember how desperate things were 1942 and 1943, we were fighting a two-front war. It was by no means clear we were going to win that war. It was a close-run thing for a long time. What Roosevelt decided was this, is that the Department of Justice would be doing no espionage uh, investigations or trials during World War II. In order to, to, to uh, get permission to do so, the Department of Justice had to go to the Department of State and get their permission to be able to, to uh, arrest or prosecute uh, Soviet spies. Guess what, there were none. Roosevelt, we didn't find any spies. We weren't looking for them. And again, to be fair to the FBI, they were mostly looking for, for Germans and Italians and Japanese. But it was critical. Uh, can you imagine what, what Stalin would have said if, if we'd started a, a series of trials in Washington trying his spies while he's saying, you know what, I'm killing 60,000 Germans a month I'm losing 11 million men, and what are you doing? You're trying my guys in, in, in your courts? 
I don't think so. I mean, it would have shattered the alliance in a way I think uh, little else would have done. So anyway, uh, you know, uh, I think, again, it, 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 what, what Roosevelt did was absolutely right. Uh, you know, if you look at it in the context of his times, I mean, again, others later would call it treasonous in 1947, 48, and the Soviets seemed to be no longer our gallant allies, but actu actually uh, 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 tyrants and, 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 uh, and dictators. But at the time, it, uh, it made sense. I'm going to stop uh, right now uh, because I've been told to leave about 15 minutes for questions. So that's what I'm going to do. So thank you very much. engaging character, but um, you spoke of moles and development of counterintelligence. How do these intelligence agencies go about looking for moles without setting one employee against another and everybody looking over their shoulder? What a, what a great question. Um, we got into the OSS after an eight-day background check. Now when you get a top-secret clearance, uh, they go back to your 18th birthday and go to every neighborhood, every school, every job, everything you've ever done, it goes into a thick file. Then if you're in the CIA or the uh, uh, um, DIA or NSA, you get polygraphed. Um, and so it is, uh, this happens every five years, in periodic uh, reinvestigations. Also, uh, you know, your colleagues, uh, it, it's, it's funny, I mean, um, you know, those of us who are in this business take it very seriously. And you know, you, you do look for unexplained wealth. You see your colleague the next day driving a new Jaguar. Uh, now, <laughs> Aldrich Ames apparently was dumb enough to bring a Jaguar up to CIA through the gates, and he's a GS-12. So questions begin to be asked, well, wait a minute. He claimed you know, he had inherited the money, but that didn't make any sense with people in security who knew his family background. So, I mean, the, the, there is, I mean, uh, you know, the, I don't, I don't uh, know. It, it's funny when you, you talk about the uh, traders of Lee's era, the only ideological traders we seem to have as of late, and, and you see this every now and then, uh, is uh, are, are Americans who are arrested for spying for Cuba. They don't like the fact that we still have an embargo against uh, Castro's Cuba, and they still think that's, uh, that's unfair. But by and large, the type of ideological motivation that, 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 that Lee was subject to doesn't exist anymore. I mean, most of the modern spies seem, seem to be mostly in it, unfortunately, for, uh, for money. I mean, that makes them easier to find. It doesn't limit the damage that they do. But, but uh, you know, I'd like to think we've gotten better than an eight-day background investigation. Um, so let's, let's keep our fingers crossed that, that I'm, I'm right. Uh, do we have a psychological profile on Mr. Lee in the CIA records? Uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, the security files in CIA are still classified. Remember this, uh, what happens is when OSS is dissolved by Harry Truman in October of 45, uh, its, its records go to CIA. I do know this, that in the, in the uh, early 90s, uh, James Angleton, the legendary or infamous head of CIA's counterintelligence, uh, asked about Duncan Lee, and, and uh, a very close friend of mine uh, was given the ticket of, of looking into Lee's past again. But I don't know whether the Langley psychologist ever studied Lee. I, there's no indication that they did, but I'm not saying that there, it's, it's not possible. Uh, in 1939, uh, 
Russia and Germany signed a friendship pact, and then in uh, September of 39, Russia and uh, Germany carved up Poland, and uh, that uh, treaty stayed in effect until June of 1941. Uh, this uh, alliance between uh, Russia and Germany disillusioned many uh, English uh, Marxists, communists. Uh, did it have any impact on uh, Lee? No, it didn't. Uh, the best we can tell is that about one third of the Communist Party, uh, member of the Communist Party of the United States membership, left because of the uh, pact with uh, with Hitler. I think most importantly for Lee in 1939 wasn't that, it was the fall of Spain uh, to Franco and the fascist. I think Lee was in the camp that, that, that believed that Stalin was, was merely doing what he had to do to preserve the uh, Soviet Union, that uh, he had reached out to the West, he had been turned down, and that Hitler seemed to be the best deal in, in town. I mean, it was an extraordinarily <laughs> poor miscalculation on Stalin's part and, and, and also Lee's. Uh, but, but no, it, it made no difference at all. He thought that Stalin was merely one buying time so he could arm himself better. And, 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 and two, that uh, Hitler would probably never invade the Soviet Union anyway. You know, both miscalculations. Sir, I thank you for your lecture and thank you for your book. Oh, thank uh, you. The question I have is some of the resources you've used. You mentioned uh, in introductory remarks about the Venona decryption that Senator Moynihan had asked you about. You also talk in the book about Vasiliev's mm -hmm. uh, papers. And so we have a pretty good insight into what the Russians knew and the, what we found out through them. Are there any similar resources from the Chinese? Because we know there's an extensive time that both uh, when Duncan Lee grew up in China and he goes on later after he leaves the OSS uh, with Claire Chenault and uh, the CAT. But do we have any evidence from either the Nationalist Chinese or the Communist Chinese to what extent they followed Duncan Lee? No, we know the U.S. Army did. You know, the, Lee was on a uh, most wanted list uh, that, the, that Mao Zedong kept. Uh, you know, they would like to have gotten Lee and, 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 and executed him. Um, there's no indication at all when Lee was in China with Claire Chenault that he was anything but what he said he was, which was a patriot. In fact, ironically, Lee helps found Air America, which becomes the CIA's covert airline. Uh, so it's got this odd twist in, in, in his past. Uh, you know, Lee was a favorite of the nationalists. Um, you know, uh, Claire Chenault and Tommy Corcoran, uh, Lee's employer in Washington, were very close to uh, General Isimo. And uh, you know, I think that uh, after the war, there are indications that Lee kept up his contacts with Chenault's widow and also with, with, with uh, many of the nationalists uh, that he knew. I don't know about specifically about any, any uh, communist sources that have been, uh, would, which would be the proper word, wouldn't be declassified, but that have, have come to light in the, uh, the West. Uh, Going back to Lee's psyche, here is a person that had a religious background, altruistic parents, a uh, very good person. How, I know you said he compartmentalized, but when he turned information over to the Soviets that he must have known would wind up in other people's deaths, particularly in Hungary and Bulgaria, as you said, did you find any way that he was able to reconcile that in his mind? No, I know this, he became a raging alcoholic, uh, and, and that may have been the way he coped with it. Uh, he, he also smoked three packs of cigarettes a day. Uh, 
You know, I guess in, in, in a way, you know, you have to, to look at the mind of, of a true zealot where, you know, people will be lost for a greater gain. And, and again, it's, just, it's very odd when you're writing history and, and speaking of history in 2014, knowing what we now know of the Soviet Union and its past. That time, you know, we, we, knew, we knew a lot, but we didn't know everything that, that was going on and, and what Stalin was fully capable of. It really wasn't until Khrushchev denounced him in 1953 that, that a lot of this stuff began to, began to come forward. So it, it's funny, I mean, it, it, Lee never admitted uh, what he did. He, at the end of his life, he wrote a long letter to his children. Uh, and in that thing, it's called um, the Elizabeth Bentley matter, a confidential memorandum to my children. One of the odd things about it is, to, to me, it, it's not read that way. It's it meant for a wider audience. He doesn't sign it, your loving father. He signs it, you know, yours, Duncan Chaplin Lee. I mean, just, so I think he knew at some point this was gonna come to light. And what you have in there is, you, 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 you have a, a recognition, again, of just how desperate things were in the 1930s, that it seemed like the Western society as we know it was falling apart, that Hitler was on the move, and that fascism had to be stopped at any cost, no matter what it took. And if that took innocent lives, that's just so be it. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a horrible moral calculation to be confronted with. Uh, but again, you know, that, that may be one reason why Lee uh, drank so much uh, in, at the end of his life. I mean, he had to be hospitalized numerous times to be dried out. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, the early questioner pointed out we have uh, extensive documentation of the extent of the penetration of the U.S. government by the communist agents. Uh, and there seems to be a, uh, there's been a pushback against that. In fact, the uh, Harvey Clark and John Earl Haynes had to write a book to, to answer the academic Correct. pushback. In your uh, experience with your book, in terms of book reviews, uh, people who did or did not review your book, uh, or any of the handling of your book. Have you seen any of this pushback? No, I, I haven't. Um, uh, the Wall Street Journal uh, called it a, a dark and sober story. Uh, the Washington Post reviewed it and gave it a, a very good review. I, I haven't. I mean, I, I would think, and, and one of the things I tried to do in this book was uh, I tried to do two things with it. I tried, first of all, to be fair, because a dead man can't defend himself. And secondly, I tried to do a consensus history. See, I, I'm of the opinion that neither the left or the right has gotten this completely right or completely correct. But this history is so nuanced and so messy that you can't draw bright lines in it. And you know, I come at it not only from an academic angle, but I also too from more of a professional angle. I mean, this is what I do for a living. And so I was hoping that, that, that with that type of, of background that I would be treated a little differently than some of the academics have been. And so far, I mean, knock on wood, I, I, I have been. I, I've been, been quite pleased with, with the reviews of the book. And that could change tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you for being here today and for a really interesting talk. Um, I was wondering, it, it sort of at the end of his career, the NKVD was just willing to let him go. And I was wondering if that was typical of what happened with people who spied on the U.S.? I mean, were they, were they then sort of, um, were they scrutinized by the NKVD for the rest of their lives or by the Soviet Union? Or why did they let him go so easily? And what was the fate of most people who did that? I think that they had so many Americans in, in their pocket 
that they were also too, they were very leery. Uh, there was a, a woman uh, named Julia Points uh, who um, had been very prominent in the communist underground military. So she had been called back to Russia and executed. That scared Whitaker Chambers to death and caused Chambers defection. And they were very leery of, of, of scaring Americans. Uh, and, and so they were willing to handle us uh, you know, in a much gentler way uh, than they were some, some of the other agents that they had. What they hoped to leave, it's interesting, when the OSS is disbanded in 1945 um, by Harry Truman, you've got to remember the OSS is a wartime organization. It was supposed to end when the war ended. Uh, and Truman was afraid it was going to become an American Gestapo. Again, this idea of having secret services was kind of an anathema to the American way of thinking. And we've come a long way since then. Um, <laughs> but I, I, Lee was, uh, when uh, the organization was being dissolved, William uh, Donovan asked one of his top aides to sit down and make a list of people that if and when the United States reconstituted an intelligence service, this would be the core of it. Lee's name is almost at the top of that list. Uh, his, beside his name is one note, uh, two words, highly recommended. So, you know, if, if, if uh, Bentley hadn't defected and Lee had gotten somehow back his sea legs and gotten his courage back, uh, who knows what he would have become inside the agency. So my guess is they would have been right back to him. I don't think they'd, they'd let him go only temporarily. Remember, they were going to use him as a spotter at, 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 at bottom. So the relationship was still going to be there. It just wasn't going to be passing information uh, all that much. But still, they were going to keep contact with him. With, with all the research you've done in history and his contact with the Communist Party and all the things that were going on in Russia and the role that you've had during all this in the last several years, would you care to comment on what is going on today with Russia and Putin? Well, it's funny how things don't change all that much. <laughs> just, just leave it at that. Hello there. Uh, I want when you move back to the United States in the 30s, mm -hmm. the intellectual community was, there was a high incidence of communist feelings and with that. You know, we got Social Security, one of the reasons we got it was Communist Party. Right. And so the, and a, they had elections and they were pretty sizable votes for Communist Party. So that, and he, you know, he was one of the Ivy League people coming out and they had that background. Mm -hmm. And when they went into the intelligence, or set up an intelligence agency, and I didn't know the statistic you gave where the Russians mm -hmm. destroyed their intelligence community. But they were playing, making an intelligence agency for us. So then I assume Donovan, yes. and there were some questions about Donovan. He is a Republican, but, you know, what? classmate, the president. But they had to know that, and wasn't there other, the agenda might have been that, hey, we didn't have an issue with having communists in them because right. we wanted to, communism, the Russians were making their own intelligence agents, we were making ours, we didn't have a pedigree like the English had yet, and they were doing that, and my view is, you know, and you alluded to it, you know, Truman in August of 45 abolished the OSS, you know, and, and my understanding was Donovan wanted to take it in to become what eventually would become the CIA. So he had agendas there. And the thing that I get a little interested in is, you know, he becomes a person in Air America again. So there was some allegiance back again. It was. So they didn't, they didn't throw him out. 
to the not. back 40. They did not. And my view is, isn't that sometimes how intelligence agencies, when they grow up, you never quite get rid of a source. And maybe he becomes a source that comes back. So I, I, I think they were playing all corners, weren't well, they, some degree? Interesting observation. I mean, Donovan uh, you know, had a very uh, open mind on, on people he recruited in the OSS. It was OSS, uh, you know, the, the joke was it stood for oh so social. <laughs> and, uh, and that it had a very broad tent of, of people he would, would take, particularly prominent American blue bloods. But he also took communists, uh, you know, particularly uh, men who had fought in the Abraham Lincoln Battalion in Spain because he needed men who had actually fought behind enemy lines to be able to, to drop behind German lines. And he perjured himself once before the Congress when he was asked specifically, did you ever hire, knowingly hire any communists? He said, no, that wasn't true, he had. Donovan was another one of these guys who believed in the greater good, that if, it, if I had to lie to get this, then so what? Uh, I'm looking at something bigger than this. Um, you know, I, I still think, though, that, that, that with, even with Donovan, he was taking in communists in, into the OSS, and nobody really thought, and certainly he didn't, that people coming from his background, his social class, would betray one another. That wasn't what was done. Uh, you know, there's a funny story about uh, Kim Philby when he goes into uh, MI6, and, and he goes to his interview, and he comes back, and the Russians are shocked that it's that quick. They said, are you sure you went to the right place? Uh, <laughs> And he said, yeah, I went to the right place. He said, well, what did they ask you? He said, they asked me two questions. Uh, where did you go to school? And uh, are you a homosexual? He said, Cambridge and not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. He, he's admitted into the sanctum of British intelligence, and we all know the history of, of the Cambridge Five. So, I mean, uh, but again, he had the right pedigree, the right background, the right schooling, and, and it was just inconceivable that these guys would betray one another. It just wasn't seen. And even the FBI, Hoover didn't believe that people would spy unless they were paid. He would be right in the modern era, but in those days, the ideological traitor was a, a real problem for us. It, we were very naive, uh, uh, you know, uh, being able to combat this. We didn't have the training for it. We didn't have the expertise. We had to learn on the job. And that's, you know, <laughs> and guess what? When you do that, and we've done plenty of that after 9-11, you make mistakes. It's just part of the way these organizations work. We gain experience and we get better. CIA didn't really establish a counterintelligence directive until 1952. It took a while to get this going. And then it was a disaster when it was because they, a lot of innocent men had their careers ruined. So it's, it's a very, this isn't a science. I mean, I, I, I'm afraid that intelligence remains uh, an art. That, and, and so with that will come mistakes. Um, I'm no, not an intellectual by any means and all of these questions have been asked by men. I'm gonna ask one from a feminine point of view with the, you said earlier in your speech that he, the first time he married, what's that, is a whatever her name is. Yeah. How many times did he marry? How did this affect his life and his family life? And I would think that women would not be able to live with a person that had his kind of life. And what, how did he end his life with his children? And was he presently married oh, when he died? Fascinating question. Uh, let me put it like this. Lee was uh, a legendarily unfaithful husband. He was married twice. Uh, I met with one of his old Yale uh, classmates, and, and he, he said, you know, Duncan Lee screwed more than a silkworm. I'd never heard that before, as, as <laughs> to define promiscuity. He was uh, apparently a legendary ladies' man, uh, a great, great charmer. In fact, uh, a woman killed herself over him in 1946 when he refused to leave his wife. Um, 
his wife finally got on to him in 1953 and started her own string of affairs, and then the marriage dissolved in 1959. Um, but I, 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 it's funny, you know, when you look at him, he, he looks kind of plain, but, but there was something about him that, that uh, gave him almost an animal magnetic attraction for women. I don't know what it was, and, and, and they for him. Uh, it made his home life uh, very, very unhappy. I mean, I, I think one of the, the personal costs in this, uh, you know, it shattered his family. Uh, when the divorce happens, Duncan's left with four of the children here in the United States. He enrolls them in, 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 in prep schools, and then his wife takes the youngest one back to the UK. So the family kind of grows up uh, apart. He was, I think, uh, a loving father. He has certainly always supported his children, but he was not an easy man uh, to get to know, and, and I think in many ways, anytime any conversation came up about his past, it was just shut off that he was a victim of uh, a crazy woman, uh, McCarthy hysteria that had broke down his career. Here's a man who could have been sitting in the, in the governor's mansion here in Virginia. Instead, he's uh, you know exiled in, into Toronto, Canada. Never mind, he's a millionaire, but he still sees his life as being wrecked by this uh, this stuff. And uh, you know, I, I think. In the end, you know, he died a deeply unhappy man. And it is a dark book. Yeah. Thank you.